Hello and welcome to Dare to Use the F-Word, the podcast that brings you stories about how millennials are taking on feminist ideas and making them their own. I'm Rebecca Lee Douglas, and Dare to Use the F-Word is a production of Barnard College and the Barnard Center for Research on Women. I'm here with senior Phoebe Lytle. Hi, Rebecca. I'm a senior at Barnard College, as Rebecca mentioned, majoring in comparative literature uh, with a concentration in Spanish and Arabic, currently working as a research assistant at the Barnard Center for Research on Women, and graduating this May, fingers crossed, and looking for kind of career opportunities in alternative sentencing initiatives, um, but really interested in getting involved in criminal justice reform. This month, we're devoting an entire episode to stories about One Billion Rising, which is this movement to end violence against women. The One Billion Rising campaign was initiated by Eve Ensler, the playwright who wrote The Vagina Monologues. So before we go any further, we'll give you some background information. The Vagina Monologues is made up of a series of monologues about what it's like to be a woman. In the original performance in 1996, Eve performed all of the monologues, but today, different actors usually deliver each piece. In 1998, two years after Eve first performed the Vagina Monologues, she and others started V-Day, which is a global nonprofit movement that raises money to support women's anti-violence groups. This year is the 15th anniversary of the creation of V-Day, And so Eve started a new campaign, One Billion Rising, to reignite the movement to end gender-based violence. One billion. One billion. One billion rising. I'm rising because I've had enough. I'm rising because I'm over it. It's time for women to speak with one voice. On February 14th of this year, One Billion Rising supporters in more than 190 countries rallied in support of the campaign. Their website, onebillionrising.org, had a really cool interactive map where you could type in your zip code and then find all of the risings in your area. There were dozens of events in Manhattan alone, and many of them used dance as a way to express solidarity and empowerment. The official One Billion Rising dance was performed all around the world, and you could go to the website and learn the steps, and then just go and show up at one of the rising locations, and then you'd be able to dance with all of the other members of the community. So here's a clip from the One Billion Rising website, which has an instructional video about how to do the One Billion Rising dance. So for the introduction of the dance, you are going to improv and internalize the music. Have fun with it, though. Walk, two, three, four, step out, step out. One, two, three, four, So Phoebe, you went down to Washington Square Park to talk to a bunch of people down there, right? Yeah, I did. Um, And we got some audio from people just talking about their experiences, their reasons for being there. Let's play the clip and then we can talk about it. Savannah Cook, I'm from I'm from Beaverton, Michigan, which is tiny, no one knows where that is, but I actually work in Midland, Michigan at a battered women's shelter. And we came out here just for this. Um, I'm Tova, I'm from Montclair, New Jersey, and I'm here to be with my school and fight violence against women. And all of these women speaking out, united, saying no more. We're not going to deal with um, the things that we deal with every day. 
And I think that's a great statement to have. And the little girl that was dancing beside me, love it. My name is Lisa Whitner, and I live in Hoboken, New Jersey, and I teach at the Hudson School in Hoboken. I teach to the subject every grade level in high school about dating violence and all different kinds of violence against women, and I'm always shocked uh, about how many of them know somebody who has had to deal with it. And, it. and certainly for me, just as a woman, as a mother, as a teacher of many young women, I think it's hugely important. I participated in the second wave of feminism in the 70s and the struggle is endless for us to defend each other and ourselves and our rights. So I was here with my daughter and her friends and we learned the steps and we love to dance. I think this is the only way to transform the world. It's exhilarating even when we practice it. It's a very empowering song. Um, it's empowering to do the movement, but to be here on this day when the sun is shining and there's, I don't know, two or three hundred women here, um, it's pretty awesome. What was it like being down there? Sure. Uh, so we got down there right before the, or like, I got down there to start doing the recording right before the uprising started and there were people holding different signs. Many of them were the official sign of the One Billion Rising. Uh, I also noticed a lot of people holding uh, VAWA signs. That's the Violence Against Women Act. So this was happening right around the time when the Violence Against Women Act was still up for renewal in the House. Yeah, so you, you also told me that uh, you were sort of struck by all of the media that was around and taking pictures and, and watching and, and the media coverage in general. What were your thoughts on that? Sure, and that's something I, I struggle with a lot. Um, I've been on the other side of the camera before, and I had gone down to the slut walk actually last two years ago. It was a response to victim blaming, which is kind of built into a lot of uh, police responses to instances of sexual violence and started in Canada and took a while actually to get to New York. And I think that that's significant. And the reason I think I bring it up in this context is it, it has similar strategy of taking up public space in bringing to the forefront issues of sexual violence and assault. And so for the slut walk, someday in, I think it was October. It was October 2011. Sorry. October 2011, there we go. Yeah. And they had signs. Um, a lot of them were identifying as um, survivors of rape or assault. And, and kind of the theme or the idea was that most people were you know, they're like dressing kind of however they wanted to dress and saying that, that that should not be a provocation. A really interesting dynamic there was just um, the extreme amount of cameramen there. I, I actually didn't end up taking very many images that day and kind of needed to step back because I, I wasn't sure what to point my camera at and how to represent this image, especially when it was people who were really making themselves vulnerable, exposing themselves as survivors in a public space. And I didn't know what what my what my making an image of that just how that would be how it would be used how to represent it um, so I really in that moment really struggled with it and so it was interesting coming to this one billion rising event I didn't have a camera with me uh, and just observing that interaction and also observing what really struck me was the people who were dancing or the audio clip that we played from the instructional video it was clear these people had rehearsed this um, sequence down to perfection and Everyone was so absorbed in 
the movement that they were doing and the group that they were within. And it was, you know, a random kind of assemblage of people. Most I, I saw a lot of daughters and mothers, but other than that, it seemed like most people had kind of come together in that moment, having um, practiced, you know, I'm imagining like alone in their room in front of their computer with yeah. the YouTube video pulled up on their screen. And and so there's just this incredible moment of synthesis, everybody, everybody dancing. They did it twice, actually, because once was certainly not enough. And, you know, at the end, everybody is kind of hugging and, you know, applauding. And then everybody kind of goes off into their respective lives, respective work. But my feeling was that for most of the people, the work didn't end there. And, you know, as evidenced by the women who came from Michigan, you know, they're, they're returning to their jobs at a battered women's shelter, uh, the different instructors that we spoke with, they're, you know, going to go and continue facilitating sessions of a social justice after school group. So that was what really um, stood out to me. It's, you know, though there was this moment of collaboration of people coming together and then everybody going off into their individual spheres, for most of them, it, it wasn't ending when the music turned off at Washington Square Park on the 14th. So, Phoebe, while you were down in Washington Square, I was able to speak with Morgane Gooding-Silverwood, who has been the director of the Barnard Columbia production of The Vagina Monologues for the past two years. She's a junior here at Barnard, and I started off my interview with her by asking what she thought about this year's One Billion Rising campaign. In theory, it is very great, and I think that a lot of the women who went to the events who are perhaps survivors or, you know, pretty much everybody knows a survivor just because of the numbers, for those people, it's a very healing and important movement. However, for the actual effectiveness of actually changing the way that we deal with gender-based violence as a as a society and as a culture. I would appreciate to see maybe in the next year getting women out there as activists and dealing with the structural issues that... Um, like what are some of the structural issues that you're talking about? I think focusing on punishment and focusing on prosecution does very little to bring justice back to communities and a lot of communities are actually harmed by the sort of quote-unquote solutions that we're talking about to gender-based violence. So so basically that the dancing is cool, but it would be great, <laughs> it would be great if there was more attention on like what you could actually do to make, make a change. Yeah, I, I think that dancing is definitely cool. And you know, I, I myself in dealing with, um, you know, surviving sexual violence, like things that are expressive and reflective internally, theater, is a very, very healing thing. It is for the individual. And sometimes in order to do the structural work, it's most important to heal the individual first. So I read in this article from the Columbia Spectator last year that you did your first production of the Vagina Monologues in high school. And you did it after you were in sort of like an unhealthy relationship. And you turned to it, you know, as you were saying before, to sort of heal. Um, so would you mind telling me about that experience and finding the vagina monologues and tell me as, you know, as much as you're comfortable with. Yeah, certainly. I'm, yeah, I'm definitely pretty comfortable with talking about it now. This was like the middle of high school. I don't know. I think my path thus far as a young woman had been really difficult and confusing as it is for a lot of young women and young people in general. I dealt with a lot of sexual harassment and I dealt with them so much on a micro level every single day that falling into a really 
emotionally and verbally abusive relationship didn't seem that shocking. It wasn't like really jarring to me. It's interesting now to talk about it because of how perceivably strong I am in this whole movement. <laughs> and um, a lot of people are like, I just don't understand how that went on for so long. It was a year and a half, two years that I was stuck in that. I think it's really hard to imagine how that could happen, but I guess that's the point, is that nobody understands why a person is stuck in that. I didn't understand why I kept going back, but I did um, until I had enough, and it was, I switched to this school. I switched to the New School of Northern Virginia, and it was a really amazing place, and it was really small, and the theater director was also the English teacher, and the first feminist man that I'd ever met. And he introduced our classes to some reading material. It was about this woman who had been stalked, basically. Um, and the conversations that had been woven into the play, they paralleled my life so clearly. It got me thinking about theater in general and how that could be used as a tool to, you know, really explain our stories and to spark thought. And I guess I came across the vagina monologues, and um, I remember reading it on the train, and I was sobbing. And this guy was sitting next to me reading the sports section or something. He looked over at me, and I'm reading this book, Vagina, like huge on the cover. And I was just like thinking, oh my god, this guy must be so freaked out. What am I even? Uh, but then I couldn't stop crying because I had to cry, right, to get it out. It was so powerful to read even a couple things that I felt reflected me and, and, and my thoughts and the pain that I was experiencing. Something struck me, you know, once I got into feminist theater, to see that there was something going on outside of my world that was affecting a lot of different people. And it sort of just became this thing I, I wanted to commit every single day to. So um, I, I asked a couple of my female friends from um, my old school uh, to come do the show. And bringing it to school was interesting because um, a lot of young women stood by it. Um, and the school gave me a lot of gruff for putting the word vagina on posters, which was interesting. The most profound thing about the play, though, was that a lot of my friends from the cast came to me afterwards and said, you know, um, it was so healing to be up there because I had dealt with, you know, this such and such issue of sexual abuse or molestation growing up and it meant so much to be able to tell my story through another person's story. It clicked that like, what's really cool about doing a set of monologues every year is that you can imbue it with whatever you want and there's still anonymity. To see how healing that was for a couple of members of the cast and how healing it was for me. Um, and to just create like a new sort of sense of trust um, was really profound, I think. The way I feel about the show and the production and everything has changed because things evolve. I think my feminism then, being a white woman, was very like white feminist oriented and all of the problematics that come with that. Um, but to think back on it is, it's really important. And it's what makes me do the show every year because it is hard, it is a pain in the ass to produce the show, oh my God. But when I would think about not doing it, 
because I definitely did. And even this year, I was like, I just don't think I'm going to. Um, there would be no director, right? And to think that I would be taking away the opportunity for 15 to 20 women to meet each other, get together, and to be able to have that heal. To take that away from them would be totally unfair. It would be sort of like betraying where that came from in the first place, I guess, for me. You were saying that when you uh, initially, the, f the first time that you did this performance, that you were focused on what you perceived as white, you know, white feminism. Yeah. That's sort of like, what, <laughs> but it changed quite a bit over time. For sure. It seems like the people behind the show every year just find a new, not Western country to go to and to find victimized women and to then spread their struggles around via the show and all the campaigns they attach to it. So wait, they would go to other countries and have them perform yeah, like, the show? N well, they no, she does the Spotlight campaign. So like the Spotlight campaign is One Billion Rising, right, this okay. year. But the Spotlight campaign has before has been about Congolese women. And um, you see a monologue that basically is a woman who is self-proclaimed from the Congo and then talks about how awful rape in her life was. Mm -hmm. And there's no context given, there's no history given. And there's also no really idea of who she really is given. Um, and the only time we really want to talk about women in the global south is when we're talking about them as being helpless victims. To see it as the thing that's just basically women here are getting raped, so men there are bad, and women there are victims. And that's kind of how it's presented, and I think it's really, it's really difficult to deal with. And... Um, so I guess the way I deal with it is by talking about it and making everybody really, really aware of that. It definitely, a, a lot of what we do in the show now to keep it relevant and to not have the issue of presenting a play that was written in 1998 and trying to present it as totally culturally relevant for right now, even though queer women and women of color have always existed and existed in 1998, they were just not presented in Eve's work because I don't, I don't know how much critical thought was done. Um, Eve is white, by the way, <laughs> um, if that wasn't apparent yet. I already have, have sort of taken some real efforts to make this show about all women. And of course, that means women of color being a, a huge part of the show and the dialogues within the show. But also, it means sort of discussing um, the identities that women can inhabit. There was no representation of trans women in the show until a few years ago when there was one spotlight monologue written uh, for them. So that means a new monologue that you Yeah, heard. a new monologue that was added. And it's sort of now an optional monologue, which I think is interesting because I think that it should be a required monologue, right? But then it's also this idea of appropriating that struggle, I had no trans women audition this year, so can I have a, a cisgendered woman perform that monologue? It's a difficult thing to reconcile with. But to think, I mean, just first and foremost, on a very basic level, I've become a really active member of the queer community here. And I think it's so interesting how heteronormative the show is and how it gets away with that every single year, how that's not something that's thought about or discussed. And I think it, it's not thought about or discussed because there's one monologue that is the woman who loves to make vaginas happy that's about, you know, um, a female sex worker who works with women. But um, speaking from the perspective of a queer woman, it just doesn't feel like the voice of a queer woman at all. 
it feels like it's very written to titillate male viewer and playing to male desires. It doesn't really feel like it's coming from a place of understanding a queer or a lesbian identity. And so, yeah, I guess in the 10th anniversary edition, the woman who, who Eve wrote the monologue about had talked to Eve and said that she felt really, you know, misrepresented, that it wasn't really written for a lesbian. And so in the 10th anniversary edition, there was a new monologue written called As a Lesbian. And I thought it's interesting it hasn't been included in any of the versions that are released to us. But I think it's a really amazing, just to even say, okay, so you liked this monologue, great. Now let's think about it this way. Um, the woman who actually had this written about her didn't feel comfortable with it, so... I have to give credit to that, you know, and to have something performed. Morgan, thank you so much for coming and speaking with me. Oh, thank you. It was so great talking to you, Rebecca. If you're interested in getting involved with the movement or attending similar performances and events, you can visit vday.org. But to finish off this month's podcast, we have an original monologue performed by Columbia University sophomore Gabriella Pelsinger. Gabriella came to college as a spoken word poet. When she got here, she knew that she wanted to get involved with V-Day and the Vagina Monologues, but she didn't have any acting experience. And so she used her spoken word skills to create a monologue specifically for Morgaine's production. The piece evokes a lot of really cool images from biblical stories and political movements, ideas about morality and slut-shaming, and just what it's like to be a woman in everyday college life. So take a listen. When girls are hungry for knowledge, we should feed them. When they go hunting through forests and climbing up trees, sniffing for the tendrils of the pomegranate breeze in search of the fruit that tastes of wisdom and feels like discovery is melting on their tongues, we should breathe support into their lungs and tell them not to worry that the stars would be honored to guide them through the darkness because if your quest is for progress, you will never go hungry. When girls are starving for knowledge, we should not strike them down should not thunder rage from the heavens and kick them out of their garden, should not hand out punishments that last for eternity, should not ever dare to label their curiosity, perversity, we should not punish her. She just wanted to learn. Through open palms up to the sky as she reached for the apple, but they only saw her middle finger, so they caged her in a chapel and her blood would stain glass for centuries. She was dangerous, too dangerous for their world, so she was hurled through the gates. There would be no glory for the girl who dared to challenge her fate. Instead, they changed her story. And we are taught of someone else. Eve was far too easy. The woman followed anything, took anything, let anything into her mouth. She should have known better. 
should not have listened to that serpent, should not have gone with him into the tree. She should have seen what was coming in the dark amongst the branches, should have expected the scratches. Clearly she wanted what was coming. Just look at what she was wearing. Not even leaves hid her blushing that slut. That slut and so revolutionary is chipped off her tombstone before she's even had time to be buried and the blueprint for her daughters becomes something much different as our history is steeped in a heritage of sinner and sluts of sinner and sluts of sinner and slut and our names are soaked in her fabricated legacy and our bodies become carved with the scars of our ancestors heresies Today, blood stains the Leto's line streets no longer safe, and politicians keep trying to redefine rape, and one in four women will be sexually assaulted while in college. So it's about time someone acknowledged that this is an epidemic. Just look. Just look for the symptoms they are not that hard to find. How many cat calls will bruise her breast today? How many will become implanted in her spine, cause the very fibers of her sense of self to decay? How many times can you call a woman a slut? before the word climbs up the walls of her larynx like some battered bougainvillea, sealing it shut with its sludge, and she has nothing left to say for herself, and we have nothing left to say for ourselves. No words are left to speak, but the one being forced down our throats, so we try to reclaim that one. So we march to reclaim that one thousands and millions strong tried to take it back, tried to take something back, maybe. If we took over enough sunshine-streaked sidewalks, it would stop lurking in alleyways, drenching the night sickly with its twisted melodies, maybe. If we splashed it over our bodies with enough brightly colored pigments, we could cover up the black and blue craters that too long have stained cheekbones, maybe. If we shouted it up to the heavens loudly enough, Eve would hear us and realize she had nothing to be sorry for. She had nothing to apologize for. It was not her fault. When girls are hungry for knowledge, we should feed them. When they go hunting through forests and climbing up trees, sniffing for the tendrils of the pomegranate breeze, we should breathe support into their lungs and tell them not to worry that the stars would be honored to guide them through the darkness because if your quest is for progress, you will never go hungry. Thanks so much for listening. That's the end of this month's show. 
But next month on the podcast, we have a conversation about the evolution of millennial feminism between columnist and Pulitzer Prize winning author Anna Quinlan and blogger and founder of the F-Bomb, Julie Zeilinger. Thanks to everyone who helped us put the show together, including this month's guests, Morgane Gooding-Silverwood and Gabriella Pelsinger. Phoebe Lytle is my co-host, and special thanks to Sarah Dooley for composing our podcast song. Make sure to visit the BCRW website at bcrw.barnard.edu and send your questions, comments, and ideas for future shows to bcrw at barnard.edu. We'll be back on the last Friday of next month, but for now, we'll just leave you with a dare. Use the F word.